Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 1, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. In July 2007, Mad Men premiered to 1.65 million viewers. The show had been pitched to multiple networks, including HBO and Showtime, but it was the upstart AMC that gave life to the idea of a 1960s period drama, with its president Ed Carroll stating, We took a bet that quality would win out over formulaic mass appeal. After seven seasons, 92 episodes, 16 Emmys, and widespread critical acclaim, it's safe to say the bet paid off. In this series, we'll take a critical look at AMC's television drama, Mad Men, with podcast episodes for each episode of the show. Throughout our episodes, we'll explore the show's writing and production to find out what worked, what fell short, and how Mad Men created a compelling narrative. This week, we'll discuss the series' emblematic debut, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, an episode which introduced audiences to 1960s America, to the advertising agency of Sterling Cooper, and to the series' central character, Don Draper. The episode opens to a sequence of animations set to an adapted version of musician RJD2's song, A Beautiful Mind. I plan to discuss this credit sequence in more detail in a future episode, but for now, Just know that AMC's idea of a silhouetted businessman free-falling amidst vintage brand imagery became so powerful a representation of the show that the network decided to launch much of its marketing around this silhouette concept. Many of the marketing images you've seen featuring cast members were created before this opening sequence and were only used for the show's initial season. After the initial credit sequence, the screen fades to black as the following text appears. Mad Men a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. This text appears on the second page of the pilot's script. Upon seeing it, director Alan Taylor decided to insert the short epigraph, known in filmmaking as an intertitle, or title card. The first scene opens in a low-lit bar packed with well-dressed businessmen and women. The scene is shot in the famous Lennox Lounge in Harlem, New York City, which hosted performances from influential musicians like John Coltrane, Miles Davis, and Billie Holiday, and was frequented by Langston Hughes and Malcolm X. In his commentary, showrunner Matthew Weiner notes that the decor is Art Deco, a style which, along with the music continuing from the previous scene, predates the show's March 1960 setting. These details help immerse us in the world of our characters. Mad Men doesn't always engage in over-the-top 1960s tokenism, but instead aims to depict life as it would have been at that time. Establishing this reality helps anchor us in the period in a more realistic way. This is a show set in 1960, with characters who view that period as modern. The camera pans from the bar to Don, seated alone, writing, shot from the back. Don lingers in thought for a moment until he's approached by an elderly black waiter who he asks about cigarettes. After a manager approaches to interrupt, Don dismisses him and continues his conversation with the waiter, probing him with more cigarette questions until the man succinctly concludes, I love smoking. The waiter leaves and Don looks up confused, the camera showing a montage of patrons drinking and smoking. From our first scene, we see Don alone, always working. We're shown how he tries to understand other people and their emotional connection to things. We're exposed to some of Don's forward-thinking morality, namely his dismissive attitude towards the period's easygoing racism. 
The scenes, filming, and dialogue contribute to our show's development of a complex character. Don's inclusive racial views make him a sympathetic character who can easily relate to people, but he's lonely, overtly arrogant, and at times dismissive. This scene also introduces another unmistakably important motif in Mad Men, smoking. Smoking is an important thematic element depicted throughout Mad Men, but it's perhaps never as in your face as in the series debut. We see patrons holding cigarettes and Don himself smoking as he chats with his waiter about cigarette brands. A viewer once recorded Don as smoking 74 cigarettes in the pilot episode alone. Smoking is so ubiquitous in this and other episodes that its depiction became a practical challenge during filming. The actor smoked herbal cigarettes to avoid jitters. But while nicotine-free, these cigarettes still produce physical symptoms, as Ham noted, saying, You can hear from my voice that it's a debilitating endeavor. We're going for verisimilitude, though. People did smoke. My father smoked indoors, in the car in the summertime with the windows up. It was a part of life, and it creates a mood on the show. The first scene cuts abruptly to Don knocking on the door of a Greenwich Village studio where he meets Midge. The apartment is bright, shabby, markedly different from the congested Lennox Lounge shown in the previous scene. We learn that Midge is a mostly unsuccessful artist who is romantically involved with Don. Her dialogue with Don is sharp and delivered with confidence, and while he's visually out of place in this environment, Don seems more comfortable here than in perhaps any other scene. He shows vulnerability in front of Midge, finally acknowledging the central conflict of the episode, that he can no longer advertise health benefits for cigarettes and has no ideas on what to do next. Don and Midge wake to a morning scene where he jokes about marrying her. The scene contains some great photography, with moody morning light flooding into the apartment. Shades drawn haphazardly in the background were used by the film crew to obscure features of nearby buildings that wouldn't fit the show's 1960 setting. Don is again displayed in a state of vulnerability, lying on Midge's chest while she continues to keep him in a state of unease. Their casual banter was likely inserted to portray the openness of their relationship. Midge's avant-garde lifestyle is perhaps a way for Don to escape the buttoned-up corporate world. But while Don seems comfortable around Midge, he doesn't want her lifestyle. He dresses and leaves as the camera cuts to the next scene. We're first introduced to the offices of Sterling Cooper with an overhead shot of the street. We see three young men, Ken Cosgrove, Harry Crane, and Paul Kinsey, enter the elevator, followed by the meekly dressed Peggy Olson. Peggy is short and visibly nervous. The men trade jokes at her expense until the elevator doors open and they exit together. These guys were originally cast as sort of extras, intended to form a chorus representing young male ad executives, but they were received so favorably that the show eventually spends significant time expanding on their stories. The next few scenes involve shots filmed similarly to draw some intentional parallels, demonstrating the different worlds of men and women at the time. It's clear that this is a world centered around male convenience. Several shots show Ken, Harry, and Paul walking through the office, chatting about a bachelor party. These shots are framed through doors, interrupted by walls and panels of the office, lit with fluorescent light that made filming difficult. This was a small set, so many of the shots involved the actors walking in circles. The young men pass a secretary and enter the office of Pete Campbell. Campbell, played by Vincent Carthizer, is a cocky young ad man on the verge of marriage. Pete talks through the phone, reassuring his fiancée, 
as his friends joke about the planned bachelor party. After hanging up, he holds a framed photo of his wife, which, as some viewers may know, is a photo of Matthew Weiner's mother. Pete's wife, still uncast, would eventually be played by Allison Brie. A similar sequence shows Peggy walking through the same hallways with Joan Holloway, the office matriarch and the supervisor of its secretarial staff. The ladies discuss various topics, and we learn that Peggy is Don Draper's new secretary. Peggy listens eagerly as Joan advises her about how to handle the men of the office. Joan encourages Peggy to use her sexuality, commenting on her appearance and her plain clothes. The two then reveal an IBM Selectric typewriter and joke about how simple it is to use. These typewriters are perhaps one of the major departures from the period correctness of the show. They were introduced by IBM in 1961, over a year after the March 1960 setting of the pilot episode, but were preferred by the showrunners for their practicality. As Don approaches, Joan's tone quickly shifts to subservience, and the scene transitions to his office. Don enters his office with Roger Sterling to discuss their upcoming meetings with Lucky Strike and Mankin's department store. Don's office is large and luxurious, but seemingly oversized for his modest desk. He pulls out a new shirt and changes as Roger asks him about the cigarette account, but Don's previous vulnerability has been replaced with a confident nonchalance, and he gives no hint that he has run out of ideas. The two trade casual jokes about Mankin's Jewish owners and discuss finding a Jewish employee before Roger leaves, pointing out that Don missed a button on his shirt. This is our first introduction to Roger Sterling, the agency's charismatic, silver-haired executive. He's played with such chemistry and irreverence that you could mistake him for Don's older brother. And while the scene intimates that Roger is Don's boss, their camaraderie is obvious. While Don fumbles around his desk looking for an exerciser, he drops a purple heart medal on the floor. Picking it up, Visual artist Salvatore Romano then enters and discusses artwork for Don's Lucky Strike campaign. The exchange, littered with nervousness, hints at Sal's closeted homosexuality. We see Don's sparse ad copy, a campaign that reads, Relax, which Sal jokes about, saying, You're the writer. The two men then entertain a consulting psychologist, Dr. Greta Gutman, whose feminine professionalism affronts Don's practiced masculinity. Dr. Goodman adds further details about the firm's ad crisis. The government has declared health claims inadmissible in tobacco ads. She suggests Don embrace a psychological approach that casts cigarettes as a danger that people embrace, claiming evidence suggests a societal death wish. Don angrily discards Dr. Goodman's research in his trash bin, claiming the issue is one of advertising and not psychology. It's important to contextualize this scene. The application of psychology and market research began in advertising firms around the beginning of the 20th century, and for many firms with tobacco clients, the promotion of cigarettes as dangerous became a viable strategy at this time. But Don's response is at odds with these recommendations, consistent with what we saw from him in the first scene. He's not concerned with the cold detachment of Dr. Goodman's methods. For Don, advertising involves an emotional connection that people feel with products. The question, then, isn't how society copes with the acknowledged dangers of smoking. It's how Don can create these positive emotions about Lucky Strike. The meeting ends with a close-up shot of two Alka-Seltzer tablets dropped into a glass. This is a simple transition shot that closes the first part of the episode, and it's a cheeky tribute to the plop-plop-fizz-fizz campaigns of Alka-Seltzer in the 1970s. 
Don lays on his office sofa, looking at a fly trapped in a fluorescent light panel in the ceiling. The fly, added through post-filming CGI, has become the subject of constant speculation among fans of the show. And while I tend to agree with the prevailing theories that it represents Don's repressed inner self, commentary from Weiner doesn't place a lot of importance on it. The camera continues to focus on Don, sleeping, the light changing subtly against his face as we hear faint explosions in the background. This nap sequence has some surreal elements and breaks from the straightforward delivery we've seen to this point in the show. We see a point-of-view shot of Peggy Olsen from Don's perspective, almost angelic as she wakes him with repeated appeals of, Mr. Draper? This is Don and Peggy's first interaction. He quickly asks her to stall while he collects himself, to which she demonstrates some of her out-of-place virtue, asking, Do I have to? Pete Campbell enters anyway, leaving the near-empty set visible through the open door. He becomes immediately interested in Peggy, making several comments about her appearance before Don stands up for her. It's interesting to observe how the show depicts Don's inconsistent moral code. The admonishment continues as Don and Pete walk through a hallway to a meeting with Mankin's department store, with Don pointing out that Pete's lack of professionalism will prevent him from success in a business centered around building relationships. They enter a boardroom, and the scene ends with a lighthearted joke. Don mistakes his client, Rachel Mankin, with the Jewish man Roger Sterling has brought from the office mailroom. We leave the offices of Sterling Cooper for our next scene as Peggy visits a doctor to get a prescription for birth control pills. The doctor, recommended by Joan and played by Rémy Aubergenois, switches almost sociopathically between sternness and flirtation. As he administers a gynecological exam, we see uncomfortable close-ups of his tools. He discourages Peggy from abusing the medication through sexual promiscuity and writes her a prescription for Enovid, the first combined oral contraceptive pill, approved by the FDA in June 1960. The story returns to the offices of Sterling Cooper, where Don, Roger, Pete, and an unfamiliar man named David Cohen meet with Rachel Mencken to discuss ideas for a coupon campaign to promote her department store. Miss Mencken, unimpressed, challenges Don's work as uninspired, claiming she contracted him because of his agency's reputation for innovative ad campaigns. Don becomes frustrated and leaves the meeting, exclaiming, I'm not going to let a woman talk to me like this. This meeting is over. Good luck, Miss Mankin. Matthew Weiner has stated that this is the first line he wrote for the script. This is important because Weiner has commented that this story is about Don Draper, and the story's creative origin is rooted in Don's masculine insecurities. Much like the doctor from the previous scene, Don struggles against a woman seizing control in the male-dominated world, and when his work is challenged with Rachel's well-reasoned concerns, he becomes petulant and leaves. This scene ends with more humor as Roger scolds David, who obliviously moves to pour himself a Bloody Mary. Pete rushes to follow Don, sympathizing and adopting a more subservient tone. Pete asks Don for his help and aims for a degree of authenticity, pointing out that while he wants Don's job, he knows he can't succeed without help. But Pete's tone becomes too sycophantic, and Don rejects him. You'll think of something. A man like you I'd follow into combat blindfolded. And I wouldn't be the first. Am I right, buddy? Let's take it a little slower. I don't want to wake up pregnant. The scene culminates with a brilliant shot of Don and Pete, centered against a translucent panel, backlit with blue light, a divider between them with Pete extending his hand and Don refusing it. 
Pete mutters an expletive under his breath as he walks away. The pilot episode repeatedly places Pete at odds with Don. What's interesting is that while Pete is portrayed as this young, unprofessional sleazeball, his actions are often pragmatic. Pete is a young man driven by the lure of money and power, seeking to fulfill the expectations of his wealthy family. He's motivated almost purely by success, and his by any means necessary approach is often at odds with Don's desire to always be the solution. Pete lacks Don's creative talent, but he often succeeds through diligence and by putting his own ego aside to ensure the best result. He can be defined by his openness. He makes no attempts to hide his own faults and his own self-interest. This authenticity at times forces other characters to confront their insecurities. So while it's easy to find him contemptible, Pete often unintentionally reveals critical aspects of the characters around him. As Pete walks away, we cut to another scene where Joan introduces Peggy to the office switchboard workers. These three women were intended as recurring characters, but we see little of them after the pilot. Of note are guest appearances by Stephanie Courtney, famous for her role as Flo in the Progressive Insurance commercials, and Kristen Schaal of The Daily Show. They make a few offhanded remarks about Peggy's outfit, and she seems alarmed, but she readily agrees. Cutting away from Joan and Peggy, the camera shows a smoke-filled room, and we're introduced to the executives of Lucky Strike. The smoking in this scene is almost oppressive, allowing the cast an improvised bit of coughing. Lee Garner, played by John Cullum, reiterates his company's continuing struggles with government regulations, while Roger makes clear that the company will no longer be able to advertise the health benefits of its cigarettes. Roger then looks to Don, hoping for some creative salesmanship, but Don stalls, looking at his empty binder as the men in the room look on skeptically. Don continues to languish anxiously for what seems like minutes. We know he has no ideas. The entire episode has built to this point, showing us Don empty-handed. Don's failure has loomed from the opening scene to his interactions with Midge to his office conversations. And at this moment, perhaps the episode's climax, we sense that Don has run out of time. But amidst Don's failings, Pete stands up, volunteering Dr. Gutman's discarded research and death wish idea, appealing to the danger of cigarettes as cool. People get in their cars every day to go to work, and some of them die. Cars are dangerous. There's nothing you can do about it. You still have to get where you're going. Cigarettes are exactly the same. So why don't we simply say, so what if cigarettes are dangerous? You're a man. The world is dangerous. Smoke your cigarette. You still have to get where you're going. Don cringes, knowing both that Pete has betrayed his trust and that this idea won't resonate with Lucky Strike's older executives. The executives discuss and eventually reject Pete's idea, moving to leave as Garner's son remarks. The bright spot is, at least we know if we have this problem, everybody has this problem. Don seizes on this, recognizing a moment of opportunity. He realizes that the ban on health claims has created a blank slate on which to market Lucky Strike, asking how the company makes its cigarettes and landing on his memorable, it's toasted tagline. How do you make your cigarettes? I don't know. Shame on you. We breed insect repellent tobacco seeds, plant them in the North Carolina sunshine, grow it, cut it, cure it, toast it. Well, there you go. There you go. 
Don explains that advertising is about invoking emotions, about creating a feeling of happiness from the product as the executives praise the line and Don regains himself. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. You are okay. For Don, creativity is rooted in appealing to people's emotions. It's why he's shown talking to a waiter about cigarettes. Don seeks to satisfy people's emotional needs, and his best work often draws from his own emotions. While sharing a celebratory drink with Roger in the next scene, he says that fear stimulates his imagination. What we're seeing is a brilliant man disguising emotional turbulence with stern masculinity. Roger propositions to Don to work for the presidential campaign of Richard Nixon, which Don rejects. He then asks Don to confront his vulnerabilities once more by apologizing to Rachel Mencken. Pete enters with Ken, Harry, and Paul, but Don declines their invitation to Pete's bachelor party. He tells Pete that he didn't use the research because it wasn't good. Pete is steadfast, disagreeing with Don as he leaves. Don then talks to Peggy, who at first tries to seduce him. Don rejects her advances, scolding her about allowing Pete to look through his office. Peggy becomes frightened. She's out of place amidst the political jockeying at Sterling Cooper. Don seems to sense this, eventually softening his tone as she becomes emotional. Don and Peggy's relationship isn't given much treatment in this episode, but a few details are exposed which set up future stories. Importantly, Don sees some of Peggy's weakness and begins to empathize with her. He protects her from mistreatment and reassures her that she belongs. We've noted that Peggy is portrayed as an outsider, and Don's empathy toward her confirms that he also senses this. The next scene shows Pete and his friends in a strip club. Much of this scene's imagery is an homage to the French movie Le Bon Femme, released in 1960. Sal makes another less-than-subtle suggestion about his homosexuality, while Pete, obviously frustrated, makes more unwelcome sexual advances towards women at the club. He's eventually rejected, and the scene ends as he sits disappointedly among the group. We then return to another room in the Lennox Lounge, where Don meets Rachel Mencken, and the two share conversation over a drink. Don asks her why she isn't married and about her life as a businesswoman, suggesting that she could be happier with a more traditional lifestyle. But Mencken rejects these ideas, noting that the life she has makes her happy, and that she has not yet found love. Don then launches into a cynical monologue, expressing his disillusionment and revealing that he does not believe in love. Rachel sees through this, remarking that she can tell that Don feels disconnected from the world he inhabits. Don is taken aback, his practice confidence again challenged as Mencken exits. The conversation adds more mystery to Don's story. When Mencken says that Don feels out of place, we recall Don's earlier encounter with Midge, the unexplained purple heart falling on his office floor, his office dream sequence, and his ability to relate to other outsiders like Peggy. Contrast Don's sincerity in saying, I'm living like there's no tomorrow because there isn't, with his earlier, it's okay, you are okay. His mistrust of others may be real, but his detached acceptance is a lie he's trying to tell himself. The public image he's crafted is withheld, unfeeling, but it's not true to his deeply emotional inner self. Don craves approval, 
His defining creativity is rooted in emotional connections. So when Rachel sees him reject his own emotions, she's quick to point out this hypocrisy. Briefly leaving Dawn, the next scene shows an uncomfortably awkward interaction between Pete, unmistakably drunk, and Peggy outside Peggy's apartment. It's unclear how Pete knows where Peggy lives, but after knocking on her door, she eventually meets him in the hallway where he makes more sexual advances towards her. Peggy surprisingly breaks from her previous behavior and allows Pete to enter. Here, Pete is expressing his frustrations and some anxiety about his marriage, while Peggy perhaps seeks a way to connect with someone. As the scene ends, we hear Gordon Jenkins' anxious, almost psychedelic version of Caravan, as Don is shown through the window of a train car. As shooting a train was too costly for the pilot, this shot was constructed using a piece of plexiglass and some hoses. The ambiance created by the music, the darkness, and Don's fedora and trench coat is mysterious, eerie, and we wonder, where is Don going now? We see shots at a train station in Ossining, a town in Westchester County, about 35 miles north of Manhattan. Note that the rain for this shot is artificial. Don leaves, arriving at a large colonial house. There he meets Betty, who awakens in the middle of the night, turning on a bedroom lamp. A few lines were added to the script to introduce her character and to convince actress January Jones that she'd have a larger role in the series. Don and Betty talk briefly before Don climbs the stairs to see his two children. The final shot zooms out as we see Don sitting with his children, Betty watching in the doorway, backed by the sentimental optimism of Vic Damone's old-timey pop song, On the Street Where You Live. The pilot episode of Mad Men was a commercial and artistic success. The premiere reached 1.2 million households, more than any original series run by AMC at the time, received critical praise, and won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series. It reintroduced us to the 1960s, glamorous, excessive, stripped of any modern sensitivities, remaining largely authentic to the period. More importantly, it introduced its compelling cast. Mad Men is, at its heart, a character study. The show doesn't depend on action sequences or gimmicks. It doesn't force us to suspend disbelief. It succeeds by building narratives around people. And from the first episode, it immerses us in a world that's familiar, with characters as relatable as they are engaging. Chief among these is Don Draper, a man depicted as both brilliant and unstable, with dichotomous ideas of morality, living a complicated life, perhaps hiding something about himself. Throughout the episode, we see examples of Don's instability. He's a man awash in emotion, hiding an inner sentimentality with outward stoicism. By showing us Don's personal moments, Mad Men creates sympathy for a character whose actions do little to inspire it. Every good story is centered around resolving a conflict. For Don, this conflict is less about an external antagonist and more a journey towards inner tranquility. Showing his isolation and self-centeredness is the show's introduction to the conflict. Mad Men's building of the Don Draper character rests on showing us just enough of his flaws to make him sympathetic. It's a testament to the show's portrayal of Don Draper that we view him not as a brutal cynic, but as a disillusioned man experiencing genuine conflict. Matthew Weiner has stated that this is a show about a man who seemingly has everything but is still unhappy. Introducing Don as this man full of contradictions forces us to ask, but why is he unhappy? Why does this man, who everyone desires, seem so alone? Why does someone so sentimental conceal his own emotions? If I had to define this episode's central theme, it would be Don's identity crisis. 
Examples of alienation are apparent from the first scene of him sitting alone in a bar. We see his short temper and his genius. We see him relate unexpectedly with a variety of characters, at times exposing his fatalistic views on love and relationships. He's even shot mysteriously, often looking away from the camera with parts of his face obscured. The sum of these details is that Don is concealing some piece of his life. And this begs the question, is he lonely because he fails to fully embrace himself? The pilot leaves us with plenty to resolve. We see Pete dejectedly seeking human connection in response to his failures. We see Peggy, surviving her first day, unexpectedly agreeing to Pete's sexual advances. And we see Don, wrapped in mystery, at the center of three women. But we'll get to expand on some of these issues in our next episode, as we deal with more of the show's female cast and ask the question, who is Don Draper? Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.